Hello everybody and welcome to the From Page to Picture podcast where we take you page by page and scene by scene through the film adaptations of all your favourite books. This episode we are discussing Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn and its Academy Award nominated film adaptation of the same name by David Fincher. Former New York-based writer Nick Dunn and his wife Amy present a portrait of a blissful marriage to the public. However, when Amy goes missing on the couple's fifth wedding anniversary, Nick becomes the prime suspect in her disappearance. The resulting police pressure and media frenzy causes the Dunn's image of a happy union to crumble, leading to questions about who Nick and Amy truly are. Published in 2012, Gillian Flynn's crime thriller novel was a huge success with it being number one on New York Times hardcover fiction bestseller list for eight weeks, in addition to 26 weeks on National Public Radio's hardcover fiction bestseller list. Yet despite this, Gone Girl was absent from winning any prestigious book awards like the National Book Awards and the Pulitzer Prize. 20 million copies of Gone Girl have been sold, so it's no surprise that just two years after a film adaptation was released, directed by David Fincher and starring Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. The film was met with such critical and commercial success, with numerous awards, including Best Actress for Pike at the Academy Awards and Best Director for Fincher at the Golden Globes. It grossed $369 million on a budget of just $61 million, becoming Fincher's highest grossing film to date. So Lucy, with both of these being so popular, it can be really difficult to pick a favourite. But what's yours? I watched the film first before I read the book and I've always loved the film and I can understand why it's so popular and why it did so well because it's informative, it's engaging, it's entertaining. But I think when you read the book, you get an extra layer that the film doesn't get in that you get this character focus and these thoughts inside the character's heads that come out within the writing of Flynn. So in that way, I'm more inclined to go toward the book. But the film does a really good job of staying loyal and faithful to the book's material. I started with the film as well. And it's a lot more accessible, I'd say, than the book it's a lot more easy for an average person to enjoy and it was while the book I kind of wish I'd started with that and then gone on to the film it was really enjoying reading the book after watching the film and then being able to go that one level further into these characters yeah I think the a lot of people would probably prefer to read the book first because you get the twists in the way that they were meant to be read first whereas if you go from film to book you're reading a book a thriller that's meant to be twist and have like these plot twists and cliffhangers but you know they're coming because you've already watched the films that kind of takes that reading experience away but I do think that you're right in that the film is accessible because it doesn't rely on the book in the same way like the goldfinch kind of did when we looked at that when you watch the Goldfinch film, it was a bit like, oh, I kind of should have read the book first to know what was going on. Yeah, but I mean, we might as well just get right into it with the the big twist reveal of uh, Amy actually being alive halfway through and orchestrating the entire events of Nick being accused of murder. And the opening of the shed, revealing all of the stuff and basically all the cards on the table from Amy. In the book, that's done really well. Like Nick opens the shed and then it just kind of cuts to black and you don't know what he's just seen. It could be Emmy's body. It could be something else. 
and that just keeps you like you immediately start the next chapter and you're surprised to see it's Amy. Whereas in the film, it's scored really well. It's really intense. You're building up to this like crescendo and you're just like, oh God, what's about to happen? And then rather than not showing what's in the shed, they immediately open with like a view of the back of Nick showing us all the gadgets and stuff that have been bought. And that kind of takes away from the surprise. But I think in part that was done on purpose because Fincher expects from the people who bought the book to know that people are going to watch this, know what the twist is going to be for the most part. But then it also is still enjoyable enough for people who haven't read the book. Yeah, I think Fincher does a really good job of keeping that cliffhanger that you get in the book through the cinematography with the black. Like there's a part where it blacks the whole screen and then Amy says, I'm so much happier than I'm dead. And it cuts to her being in the car. And it's, I think that's so powerful that, yeah, he expects readers to know the twist, but it's still, whoa, like my hair's on edge. And especially with the, the scar, like you said, um, like when Nick is finding the clues and he's going up to that cabin, like it's so eerie and so scary. And I feel like even though, even though you know what's in that cabin and if you've read the book first, you get that thriller sense that the film like wants to build up this like scary eerie tense tone yeah for sure i think in part the book does a really good job of keeping up that tension throughout and going into the second half because amy's a lot more ruthless and scary in the book she's been doing this since she was a kid there was the her stalker who she was just friends with and then she manipulated them there's the antifreeze at the very very end in which it shows that, again, Amy has fought ahead of Nick to do all this stuff, and it's just like, he doesn't stand a chance. And it's it's really quite scary, like, how much he's planned this, and it really doesn't, like, from that midpoint, it's just like, okay, Nick... Nick was in a bad situation then, he's in an even worse situation now. Yeah, Amy, it's it's not right to say, but I kind of respect Amy for the level of skill she has to pull that off. And I think there's definitely that shift in both book and film in that we kind of are against Nick in the beginning because he's seen to be this one who's been in an affair and the police make it, well, Amy makes it out to be that, that he's killed her. And then we get that shift right when we know that she's alive, that actually, hold on, she's a psychopath, like, yeah, she's pretty chaotic in the the backstory we get of the relationship in the beginning half, but we don't realise the true extent until we see her planning out when she's going to die or when she's going to drop a certain hint for the police to get. And I think Rosamund Pike does a brilliant job of bringing that psychopath to life in that she's funny, crazy, bold, and literally game for anything. Mm. One of the probably more interesting things I've found about Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck versus their book counterparts one i thought they were both cast brilliantly pike that just can look at you and you just instantly get chills <laughs> yeah and ben affleck having i'm trying to phrase this as a compliment a really punchable face so punchable I, oh <laughs> but uh it's really interesting because i feel like i don't know if it's because of the genders of the directors subconsciously phrasing but it feels like finch's definitely paints nick as more of a protagonist than the book does uh, in the book they're a lot more equal like nick in the book he skips his anniversary to go to a strip club he forgets all the anniversary stuff whereas the film version of nick he he does remember a few he tries his best 
Uh, and there's a whole charming scene where he proposes. That's not nowhere in, in the book. And it just shows that, okay, he's not a bad, bad person. I think, like, there's a point where he's, like, stroking the cat as well. And Fincher does a really good job of kind of humanising him. And, yeah, we get the scene where he um, speaks, like, smiles at the camera, you know, when with the poster and straight away you're like, eh. But, like, he's much more humanized and much more like you can kind of feel compassion for him and feel like you can root him in a way that I think the book doesn't really do because it switches very quickly between Amy and Nick and although we do have that switching in the in the film I feel Ben Affleck slash Nick are very much more like central to the beginning of the film. Mm. Film Nick is a lot more himbo Nick like he's big and dumb and you kind of feel really sorry when he's put against someone as intelligent as Amy. In the in the book, he does the whole interview with the woman by himself. He doesn't ask anyone to set that up for him. There's the whole mole bit. And he's just, you kind of just feel like he's along for the ride and doesn't really know what he's in for. Yeah, like his rumpled t-shirts and like the way he does that, like he covers his dimpled chin with his fingers. And Ben Affleck, I think, is just, born to play this like lying cheating but also really charming and slightly dense husband you know you should hate him but you can't help but like him a bit and i think that's the same with uh tyler perry as uh tanner bolt as like the scummy lawyer like he, he defends all these horrible people but uh perry does a really good job of showing like the charming nature and how he wins all these cases yeah i think tanner bolt was my favorite character in the film because he kind of epitomizes the way in which the media can kind of read a person's actions and gestures and language and get like guilt or innocent from that and I think the casting of Tyler Perry was brilliant like he brings so much energy to the role with just the right like spring thing of like confidence swagger the the like I am worth a lot of money, but I will get you out of this situation kind of guy. He's kind of the devil in a way. Like, he's a horrible person. You don't want to call him, but you know he's going to get stuff done as soon yeah. as he gets in. Like, he rules the room, and it's it's just great to see him whenever he's there. I just love the interview part where he's, like, teaching Nick how to, like, sit and everything, and he's throwing the jelly beans at him, like, nope, that's wrong, that's wrong. That's actually a really interesting part of the like both the book and film, the whole aspect of how social media can influence the law and how Nick tries to use that to his advantage. And it's sometimes he succeeds, sometimes he doesn't. It's like social media is this double-edged sword. On one point, he'll accidentally smile or he'll get caught in a photo and everyone will rip him to shreds. Other times he'll like go and do interviews and it will make him seem really good and people will believe him again. Yeah, I think there's so much focus placed on interviews in both book and film. In the in the film, they actually don't show us the interview till after a while, you know, the most important one where Amy's watching it and they lead up to it because they know that this is the defining interview that's going to like put Nick in the bad books or in the good books. I do think that they miss an opportunity in not including the interview with the young reporter. I think she's called Rebecca. And she gets him to say that he loves Amy. And that definitely in the book is kind of that turning point where it wins him back that public favour that he lost through smiling and, you know, messing on with all these selfies. And that's missing in the film, which I think is a mistake on Finch's behalf. Yeah, that really portrayed how Nick was a match to some extent to Amy, like the conniving, like it's kind of him twisting the knife a bit to try and edge her on and bring her back in. I thought that that scene was really clever at showing why Amy first fell in love with Nick. Whereas yeah. film Nick, he can't, he's just, 
you're not very smart, are you? <laughs> no, Phil, Phil Nick has no idea what's going on. Like, he doesn't even use Amy's parents to an advantage in the way he does in the book. Like, he's like, oh, if I can be on the side of Amy's parents, then the public will know I didn't kill her. Whereas we have the one scene where he's talking to Amy's mum on the beach, but this it's not really there. Like, her parents are much more kind of in the background in the film. Yeah, like, her parents are really underused in the film. In the book, they kind of symbolise this turning point in the trial or case of Nick. And it's like, when they're against him, everyone's against him. When they're for him, everyone's for him. And it's just a real, it's, it's an easy way for the audience to realise, is Nick winning this? Is he not winning this? And yeah, it's kind of, it was disappointing to see that she didn't really make much of an appearance. But it was yeah. nice to see more of the two police officers in the film than in the book. Because they really did show the intelligence of Amy and how she could, she wasn't just tricking dumb Nick, she was tricking the police at the same time. And I thought that was really good. Yeah, I think it's a really nice moment in the book where um, Nick kind of gets along with one of the police officers once she realises that it's not as simple as it seems and that it is Nick because you kind of get this relationship between them being like, okay, we need to be the one to figure out Amy's next move, even though Amy's 10 steps ahead of the police. I mean, the film, like, alongside doing more justice toward the police officers does more justice toward go as well like i feel like she's got much more of a kind of steel scening role in that when she's on she's so hilarious it's like yeah i like this character whereas in the book she's kind of just at the side dealing with nick's mess yeah i find the film is a lot more comedic than the book in part thanks to go and uh, nick's chemistry is so good and then when tana comes in it's even better just those two throwing gummy beds and stuff like that. i mean it's just they really do a great job of showing the sibling love between them like sometimes like when she finds out nick's cheating like she rightfully is pissed off at him but then it's also really endearing when they're just having a chat having a drink and just being there for each other I think that's definitely down to the visual format as well. Like, I know we both just recently watched Black Widow and I think sibling relationships come across less in written format and more in those simple just watching them like tug at each other or flick each other or like have a drink with each other. And I think that goes with the comedic effect as well in that when we get we see Nick like just say bitch in front of all these reporters at the end just like visually hilarious whereas if he said that in the book it's just a bit like that nah, you're a bit of a dick mm, yeah it's a lot easier in a film than a book to portray chemistry and tone of a room because you can't like the sits you can see two siblings on the street and like i know they're siblings but how do you describe that in a written word and it's just that's an, a part why film is so not obviously not better than books but it's an advantage it can have yeah it's something special that film can bring to the books i think that visual goes for the the groups and violent aspects of gone girl as well in that um i think one thing fincher does really well is get that violence across from the book on the scene on the film and that we get nick throwing glass we get amy being slapped around we get a lot of people just genuinely being really violent and then there's obviously the one scene at the end where she kills oh god i can't remember his name yeah and it's so violent because it's like mid-sex where she like slits his throat and but the visual effects of the red blood on the white dress and the camera angles of it like 
flicking back and forth kind of just really works better than it does in the book. I 100% agree. And I think it kind of links back to when we were talking about Emma and how when you read that, they, uh, Jane Austen talks about them dancing with each other and like, oh, yeah, they're dancing. But in the film, they've got expert choreography and dancing and like they're professionals bringing this to life. And it's the same thing within Gone Girl. They are professionals bringing this to life in a way which includes Gillian Flynn's original vision. And it's like a best way to visualise whatever you're thinking was in that scene. Yeah, like Gillian Flynn did the screenplay, which I think is quite important because obviously it's her book, her words. She knows how she wants to see it come across on screen. But I think it's you can kind of tell that straight off without like googling it because you she still keeps these dark like troublesome tones and voices of the novel in the scenes um and it's like it's special in that way I think in that she hasn't given up her vision for someone else yeah definitely it's great how it retains the heart would you say it's a heart in this kind of book it's kind of heartless but <laughs> it's it's got the heart of the book but then it also has something which makes it worthwhile going to see it, and that's David Finch's vision, which is just being mixed with hers. And they kind of, it's an interesting adaptation. But if it was both Gillian uh, Flynn in the book and the film, I don't know if it would have been, I mean, writing and directing, it would be as successful. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's interesting that Gillian Flynn's a woman and David Finch is obviously a man. So I think if you had just the woman's perspective on the film, would we just be getting a repetition of the same material in the book? And um, were they, was it released like the same time-ish around the book, like quite close together? It was about, the film was released two years after the book. Yeah, so I feel like you're going to be offering nothing new if Gillian Flynn is the one that does both the directing and the screenplay, but by adding a male perspective... It's interesting because we do get this more humanising view of Nick, but we also get a male view of this femme fatale figure in Amy. Yeah, it kind of, it definitely tips the scale, but unbalances it towards Nick as being the protagonist. But then it also shows that interesting perspective of, whereas the book kind of empowers Amy and shows that she's this badass. It kind of shows Nick's perspective as, yeah, she's badass, but she's also very, very scary. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder if because of his, it's David Fincher and a male what person directing it, that's why we don't really get much of Nick's internal misogynistic like remarks in the film as much as we do within the book. Like I'm pretty sure his granddad, oh no, his dad, not his granddad, isn't as much in the film as he is in the book, who was kind of the influence on Nick's misogyny. Yeah, I was quite disappointed when they didn't include Nick's dad because he's a really great way of fleshing out Nick's character and his own backstory because it really just shows that we are just who we grew up to be and we're influenced by our our parents and while it may not be our fault it's our job to develop into better people maybe than them and I feel like with that it doesn't really develop him enough and it just makes him just this blank canvas for Amy to rip apart and do whatever she wants with yeah I think it works in the other way as well in that we don't get um the stories of Amy taking care of Nick's mother his dying mother and that's so crucial to why she moved to New York in the first place and why she put up with that relationship and when you remove it it kind of just removes the the reason why they behave the way they are and 
just makes some plain old psychos without a backstory to explain yeah. it. And it like links back to the thing I said about how it shows Amy is a really bad guy and Nick's the okay guy because without Amy looking after Nick's mother, it's like, what's Amy really ever done for Nick? And like, yeah. Amy, Amy did try to put on the facade of the nice girl or the cool girl, sorry, but Nick really isn't a good person in the book. And I think in part Finch's influence really made him more likable, which I guess it may have been a very different film for audiences if both of them were portrayed as being really unlikable because audiences like it when you have someone to root for. Yeah, I definitely think I rooted more for Nick in the film, whereas in the book, I found myself rooting for Nick and then the next chapter I'd be rooting for Amy and then it just kept going back and forth and it was this kind of he said, she said, who do I trust? Or oh, I can't trust Amy, the whole diary's fake. Or oh, I can't trust Nick, he's having an affair. And like, in the end, I think you realise that both in book and film, they're both just so like problematic in their own ways that they're kind of meant for each other in that way. And we're not really meant to support any of them. Yeah, I 100% agree. When I was reading the book, like Amy would say one thing and the next chapter it would switch to Nick and he would say something which completely contradicts that and it will keep going back and forth to the point you have no idea who's saying the right thing and it's just a great example of a dual unreliable narrator. Rather than just having one, it's two people you can't just, it's a he shares seat, like you said. And I feel the film doesn't accomplish that as well because we aren't, in their perspective where an audience looking in for a window yeah like the film follows the same structure obviously of going back and forth between amy and nick especially with it, amy being in the past and then nick in the present but i definitely agree in that we're just kind of the outsider whereas when we're reading amy's diary entries on the page and then we're going straight to nick's mind it's much more intimate and much more as if we have a stake almost in their relationship at the same time whereas in the film it just kind of feels oh well this is just entertaining like I'm just an outsider watching this entertaining couple break up. Yeah because the book uh, has a lot more clues and uh, things for Nick to follow and it kind of uh, it kind of makes it realistic how Nick's slowly falling back in love with Amy which I guess for an audience of a film they'll be like you shouldn't be falling in love with this woman. She's doing all this horrible stuff to you. You shouldn't like this. This is bad, not good. And I feel that's a what makes the book a lot more interesting than the film in some regards because it's it's a very grey film, not just in terms of tone, but in terms of morals. Because yes, they are not good people, but they are perfect for each other in some ways. I think they are perfect for each other. They finish each other's sentences and everything. It's um, yeah, like going back to your idea of how the movie skips out clues it skips out read the actual like parts of the clues where amy compliments nick and says things like oh like you are witty i really liked it when you wore that shirt that day and i think then by just having the clue on where the the next clue is makes it more clinical and detached in a way in the film that's more intimate in the book and i do wonder if like you know the moment at the end where amy's watching the interview and she says to him when she sees Nick, oh, that's what made me fall in love with you, like that interview. I wonder if she actually did fall in love with him or that was just another part of her scheme. Yeah, like I really love what you said about how it's him, the kind of separating it out surgically. And it makes sense in the book for Nick to keep following these clues and get set up for all these crimes because 
in some regards, he wants Amy to still be the cool girl and say nice things to him because at the end of the day, everyone likes people saying nice stuff to them. And he's like, I'm going to keep going because you say nice stuff. Whereas in the film, it's not really that. It's just him following these clues for the sake of following these clues and trying to find his wife or Nick was doing what she usually does with the conniving and the trickery, but realizes that like, yes. I do love the bit at the end where she's like, we're going to get in the shower and you're going to make sure that there's no like cameras and mics and everything on you. And then he's in this, he's in this relationship right where he's stuck. Like, does he stay with her because of the baby or does, is the baby just part of this bigger scheme that she's set up? And does he love her? And does she really love him? Or are they both just the same kind of trying to be in a relationship that they feel insecure in, but where they can have control over each other? Because that's what they both need out of life, like control. Mm, it's fake it till you make it. Like they're pretending yeah. to love each other until they eventually realise that they do love each other. And at what, what point it does the faking it stop? Yeah. I don't think I'd be able to do it, like to be in a relationship where I'd be questioning every single move that I make, just in case if I said something wrong, she'd stab me. Mm. Well, I think we all know Nick is cured of his infidelity. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think of the conclusion? Do you think that she should have turned herself into the police, that the police should have caught her? Or do you think she should have died? Or do you think returning to that relationship was the right way to end the story? I do think it was the uh, right way to end. She's showed how she's able to adapt her plans. She's clever. It would it would have been an injustice to her as a character of this book if she just if she just got caught or she just killed herself. It wouldn't have shown that she won. Whereas in this situation, she has a husband, a wife, a wife. She is the wife. <laughs> she has a kid, and on the way, and it just shows that she's won this. And also with the whole Nick being a bit more calculating and more Amy in the book there was a whole bit with the uh book he wrote oh yeah blackmail her and then there's her saying delete that or you will never see your child and then the whole bit of the antifreeze and it just shows they're at a stalemate with each other him writing the book shows that he has the potential to maybe eventually get the one up on her if he keeps learning and imitating her yeah I I definitely think there's a codependency there where they kind of are obsessed with each other and addicted to one another that for Amy to be caught would kind of seem out of character and would kind of be the expected route I think like if if you're reading it you're like oh yeah Amy's gonna get caught like that's gonna be the ending and I think by putting them in a relationship it becomes another twist on it um and I think as well like there's definitely an image in Nick that yeah in both book and film he's kind of a douchebag and he has been led on by Amy but I also think he's just as manipulative and that I think he's in some way crafted this character where he's seen as this imprisoned emasculated male who wants to be controlled and he's crafted that for himself so that he can kind of get control over Amy in a way. He He's definitely a, like a, a, a mummy's boy in a way. Mm, yeah he as soon as his mother was there he's like i'm going back home i don't care what you want he's like his mother looks after him and treats him well and all that sort of stuff and i think in some ways he likes being told what to do like he didn't make it as an author his pub didn't really work so it's kind of just he he knows he's a better person when he's with amy even if he doesn't feel like a better person 
Yeah, I've, I definitely agree. I think they're both so psychotic, they just belong together, really. David Fincher is obviously really good at adapting other people's work. There was Gone Girl, and there was also Zodiac. Uh, what other books do you think would he'll be really good at adapting? Oh, I think he'd be really good at adapting maybe like a, ooh, like a Agatha Christie, maybe. Um, kind of that same thriller murder mystery vibe that he's kind of got going on in Gone Girl. What about you? I do agree with you. I think he's perfect with the uh, murder mysteries and the thrillers and stuff like that. And I think uh, actually the book I'm reading at the moment, it's The Hojin Murders by Seshi Yokomizo. And it's basically just a murder mystery set in Japan and around a household of uh, upper class people. And I feel like it could be quite interesting for him to cover a murder mystery around a set house or something like that. And there's already a lot of tension in this book and I think he'd do really good or something like that. I think he's very good in creating that tension and suspense within the cinematography of a film. So I think a book that's kind of set in one house would be really a challenge for him, but a good challenge. Um, I just recently read um, Stephen Chabowski's Imaginary Friend, which is like a horror um, kind of Stephen King vibes. I think he'd work well with that because it's got kind of like, it's like 700 pages long. So it's kind of suspense throughout the whole thing. And I think Finch is very good in building that suspense between each scene and each cut that I think it'd work well with the horror vibes of Chabosky's imaginary friend, but also kind of Stephen King too. As you said, uh, Finch is really good at building that tension. And it'd be really interesting if he just kept building it to the levels of a horror film. And seeing how he goes, like like the whole bit in Zodiac where uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character is looking at the film posters, that bit is terrifying. I think so stuff good. like that would be so good in a, a full-on film. I think he'd be good at like an escape room kind of film as well, because I think those films are, there's not many good ones, but they're really good at kind of building that fear and anxiety that comes when these characters' lives are at stake from trying to escape this room and figure out the clue i think he'd do a good job of getting the suspense that he builds on that scene with the cabin in gone girl and putting that in a film of like an escape room film escape room free directed by david fincher (laughs) (laughs) if there was one thing that you wanted that, that isn't in the film but that's in the book what would you have put in i do think amy's parents were a really good uh like factor in it because it was just one extra thing for Nick to juggle and it added to the stress of the book. He didn't just have to deal with the media, his sister, his hidden girlfriend. He also had to try and satisfy them and he had to deal with the fact that, oh yeah, I'm sorry that I haven't told you that Amy had gone missing. And also the inclusion of his dad as well, because that's another factor, like, oh, he's hit the... You mean he did that that is in the book? Uh, I mean, in the film? But even greater if he was made more of an appearance in the film is just a, an extra ball for him to juggle in this already stressful situation. What about you? Yeah, I think I agree about Nick's father and Amy's parents. I think going off on Amy's parents, I think I would have liked to have had more context or more scenes of the Amazing Amy series. Like we get that moment where she's in the club just before the proposal and she's walking past all the screens, like the 
posters being like, oh, Amy got a dog. I didn't get a dog. Like, Amy got into college. I didn't. But I think there's more in the book about this amazing Amy series and how just how much it kind of triggered and was a problem for Amy as a child, not really knowing who she is when she's got this series that she has to live up to. And I think the film could have dedicated some time to that, exploring that to kind of Mm. go deeper into Amy's character. Yeah, really, the book does a good job of showing kind of the catalyst for who Amy becomes. And it is those books, to some extent. And it doesn't really do much justice in the film. In the opposite vein, something which was not in the film, but was in the book, which I was grateful didn't make an appearance, was the whole boat scene when uh, Amy is at the cabin. I felt that was really out of place for the character she was. And she made a really stupid mistake just going for a swim and leaving all her money at the coast. Whereas in the film, it just completely gets rid of that scene and instead focuses more on like the simple mistakes she makes, like accidentally showing her money when they're playing golf and other stuff like that. And it's kind of not something she could have avoided, which she definitely could have in the book. And I feel that's uh, Flynn really showing self-improvement with her work because obviously she wrote the screenplay and she's like, okay, maybe that didn't work as well in the book as I would have liked. This is how I've improved this here. And I think that's a really good example of a creative mind. Yeah, I think the inconsistencies in Amy's characters, character in the book kind of annoyed me because she's she's this person where she's so in control of every single aspect of the story, of framing Nick, of one-upping the police. Like to let someone steal her money in that way felt really out of character and... I think the film, you're right in that the film does a good job in kind of cutting that to a, like, shortening it in the film. Whereas in the book, it feels like you've spent so much time with Amy on this boat in the middle of a river and Amy communicating with these people in the cabin that it's kind of not relevant to the story. And I think that's where the film kind of is better than the book, in my opinion, in that I did find that it's a 400-page novel, right, but... And it does pick up in pace at multiple different times, but there is moments where it's really dull and really like just Nick kind of mourning or like Amy in the cabin and the the film kind of streamlines it. So it's much more straight to the action with every single plot point. And it just, it cuts out those moments that don't really matter. Yeah, the pacing of the film is a lot better than in the book. And I think, again, that is an example of Flynn developing as a, creator with the added influence of David Finch and all his amazing previous work. I think one thing that works better on the page than it does on the screen for me was Amy's cool girl speech. I think being inside of her head in the second half of the book was crucial to making the entire part of that speech really stand out and really be explained whereas on screen we've we've seen Amy in the first half of the film but it's very much through the eyes of Nick and through this male perspective, that when it comes at the second half of the film, it just feels out of place and feels almost kind of cliched and just kind of ruined. Mm, yeah, because of the whole first-person perspective of each person, we kind of, while we do feel a bit betrayed by Amy for the whole lying, we've still been able to personalise with her and get like a connection Whereas in the film, we don't see Amy for the entire opening bits of the film. And then as soon as she's appears, she's saying all this stuff, which to a lot of the audience, they'll be thinking, that's not really true. We don't agree with this. We don't like you as a person. You've just lied to us and now you're saying all this stuff and it doesn't really hit as hard. Yeah, I think the book, the book kind of, although we do get the first person perspective between Amy and Nick going back and forth, it's 
almost feels third person to me and that it feels like we're reading case files from like a psychologist notebook or like from like a case history of this in the future where we get to see the struggles of the husband and the wife with their identity and how they've like chosen these masks to fill like the empty void of who they are whereas in the film it's very much through the gaze of Nick but then if you go back it's through the gaze of David Fincher as well whereas it's kind that's not kind of the case when you're reading the book it's difficult when you have a like a thriller or a mystery book and then you have a movie adaptation of it because Always the issue you're going to run to is that the one you watched or read first, chances are you might enjoy it more because you will not have experienced like the big twist or the big twists. And sure, one may execute them better than the other, but it still won't have the same edge as it's already hit you once. And I think that in part is why I would prefer the film. Yeah, I think it's weird for this this adaptation because I think the book and the film exist in their own right that it's almost like you can't both book and film can't occupy the same space within your brain or when you think about them you have to kind of separate them because they're both their own kind of things that exist on their own right whereas a lot of other book to film adaptations you kind of need the book to make sense of the film or the film is what you watched first so that's why you picture however you pitch them in the book and they coincide but I feel like that's different with Gone Girl. You you read the book and that's its own thing, and you read you watch the film and then that's its own thing as well. And you can enjoy both and have an experience with both. Yeah, I, I had an amazing experience with both. Like when I watched the film the first time, it was a I watched it with a bunch of friends and they'd all seen it and I hadn't. And then when it got to the big reveal of Neil Patrick Harris dying, everyone was kind of just like smiling at me. So I was like oh my god <laughs> what just happened but then when I finally got around to reading the book for this it'd been a few years and I hadn't really remembered what would happen have happened obviously I remember the big twist of Amy being alive and the killing at the end but there was still a nice few twists like the whole bit with Amy writing this entire diary as a ploy like the initial part of the text being fake I was like damn even I've been fooled and I already know Amy's plan. And I thought that was good. That's really interesting that you watched it with people who had already seen it. Because I mean, that's such an experience for them that they probably weren't even watching the film. They were just watching your reactions. Um, and I was the same. I read the book way after I'd already watched the film. And there were moments, especially Nick's girlfriend, that shocked me in the book that although she's in the film, it, I think I'd forgot that she existed. And when it came in the book, I was like, oh my God, another reason to hate me. Yeah, it's a really enjoyable experience to go back and rewatch a film or reread a book after you've experienced it the first time. Like a murder mystery like Agatha Christie or this film, you can go back and see all the little Easter eggs on hints that it's going in a certain direction. And also you can just go back and watch it with your friends and family and significant others and see how if they're reacting properly you won't be watching the film at all you'd just be have your eyes glued to their face and if they don't react correctly you disown them completely (laughs) if you could pick like one film that you wish you could kind of like you know if you took a tablet and you could forget everything and you could re-watch that film for the first time without knowing the plots and the twists and everything what film would you pick oh that is a good question honestly i think one of them would be gone girl yeah Uh, 
and just a generic one like Star Wars Episode 4, just the whole <laughs> I am your father bit. Like, I had never really had the chance to experience that. Is By that point, it was such an ingrained part of culture. I was like, oh, yeah, I know that. And then when I found out which film, I was like, oh, yeah, I know that bit happened. So it would have been really cool to just be in the cinema at that moment. And experience. it's like how uh, Captain America lifting Mjolnir is like, an equivalent moment for me because that was a surprise for me then i wish i'd been back then and be able to see the i am your father bit what about you what memory would you like to remove from your brain you're probably gonna hit me because it's, it's that's a strong star i think i'd go to breaking dawn and twilight when they're on the field and they're fighting and then it turns out that it's all just a vision. And I watched that in cinema and the whole cinema was like, what? Like it was, it was iconic. So I think I'd go back to that moment when we found out it was all just fake. Okay, that's the end of the From Page to Pitch podcast. We'll see you another time. <laughs> oh, or maybe um, what's the film where you find out Bruce Willis isn't alive at the end? He's dead. Sixth Sense? Yeah, that's the one. I think that's such a... I don't really rewatch that film much because I, I I know he's like you know the whole plot of it all, so I'd like to kind of get rid of that from my memory and rewatch that without knowing. I haven't seen The Sixth Sense and I don't really want to because I know the spoiler of like him Bruce Willis being dead. It's just no point. There's just there's that's the entire thing of an M Night Shyamalan film. Yeah. As soon as you see the twist, it's no point watching it. Kind of like the last Airbender, the twist of that being that it absolutely sucked. Yeah. Or maybe even, um, you know, in Infinity War, I can't remember which one it is, when all the portals open and it's just like you see all your characters in the back from like dust yeah, and it's just uh, so good. Yeah, Endgame. Yeah, just that entire film was such a cultural event. Yeah. And I don't really know how Marvel is ever going to be able to top that again, especially after the whole pandemic and cinema's being hit as hard as they were it's just to go on a wild tangent from david fincher and gone girl <laughs> after we, we, we've both watched uh, black widow at this point and personally i felt while it was good to some extent marvel's lost its charm yeah i've i've said this to kind of everyone that's kind of asked me how it was and i've said it's it's not a phase four are we in phase four now with the tv shows I think so, yeah. Whatever phase we're currently in, it's not phase one of those films. <laughs> it feels like it. But yeah, it belonged straight after Civil War where Winter Soldier came out. It, do it doesn't belong now, I think, and it just feels quite underwhelming as a Marvel fan. Yeah, it feels too little, too late, and after all these TV shows and Spider-Man setting up all it did and Endgame, it's just like, yes, it's it's great we finally got this film for Black Widow, but Black Widow's dead. And it's a bit too late for you to kind of brush it under the rug and give her a film. Like, yeah. It would have been so good right after Civil War, but they just didn't. They just didn't care. At least we've got Florence Pugh. That is true. And speaking of badass female killers, Amy Dune, if you had to cast someone who wasn't uh, Rosamund Pike as her, who would you pick and why? Oh, so this brings in one of my facts, because one of my facts is actually there is a lot of people that wanted to play Amy, um, Reese Witherspoon, Emily Blunt, um, Natalie Portman, Olivia Wilde, 
like so many people wanted to play Amy. So she was clearly the role that everyone needed under their belt. And I think if I were to pick one, like if it wasn't Rosamund Pike, I would probably go for the likes of like Charlize Charlize Theron. Is that how you pronounce her name? Yes, Charlize Theron from the Mad Yeah, I think like she's not blonde, but I think she's got that kind of badass kind of you can't mess with me. I'm a, a badass woman that knows what's going on. I'm 10 steps ahead of you kind of appearance. And I think she'd do a good job in it in the role. Um, what about you? Who would you cast? Uh, I'd probably be in the mind to disagree with you. Only, I mean, obviously, I think Cherie's throne is very cool. and But she's more like, I guess, father, the, the action films I've seen her in, like The Old Guard and Atomic Blonde and uh, Mad Max. She's a lot more brutal and like, you know you're going to lose a one-on-one fight with her. Mm. But I don't think she's got like the femme fatale, like I will stab you in the back and then move on type thing. Uh, I don't know why, but my mind keeps going to Tilda Swinton. And kind of <laughs> creepy, like in some of her more creepy roles. And I think that would be quite interesting to show the whole, how subtle and scary uh, she can be. Mm. Yeah, I can kind of see Tilda Swinton in that role. I think the thing is with Gone Girl and the film casting is that Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck are so perfect that it almost feels wrong for someone else to play them in a way, you know, like how you can become attached to characters as that role. I think Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck are kind of, they are Amy and Nick for me. Mm, Like, as we mentioned, uh, Affleck is so good at being the douchebag. Yeah. And you just, I want to, I want to just like, tap him in the face repeatedly with my fists and it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's great and but there's a fun fact uh he in the start of the film is quite uh, he's not muscular he kind of seems to have let himself go a bit and I, that was like the perfect nick from like he's not really caring about who he wants to be and it's an unrelated thing but as the film went on he's looking a lot more toned and muscular which kind of makes me feel like that's the that's the Nick Amy wants. He wants him to be the perfect man thing to do her bidding type thing. But the actual thing is because whilst filming Gone Girl, uh, he got cast as Batman in Batman versus Superman. So he had to actually gain a lot of muscle mass for that role, which is why during Gone Girl, you can see that he gains a significant amount of muscle mass quite quickly. That's so interesting because imagine like one day going from the set of Batman and then having to kind of, get out of the framework of Batman and be like right today I'm Nick Dunn like they're so two different roles and I think that shows in that weight loss as well I think that shows the talent of him as an actor in comparison to more method actors like I don't know Jared Leto because he has to commit to that role and at times questionably commit to those roles whereas more I, I personally think more talented actors like Ben Affleck or Leonardo DiCaprio, they're able to switch between those roles like that, Mm. which I think is really cool. I do agree, but I also kind of, it's probably an unpopular opinion, but I don't really like Ben Affleck in any role except Nick Dunn. Like, he wasn't the Batman for me. Like, he he, he didn't cut it, especially going from, like, Christian Bale. And then, he obviously, he was in, like, Good Will Hunting, but he was quite young in that, but I don't think there's a role that he's done since Gone Girl that kind of stands out as a really good role for Ben Affleck. I'll be honest, I can agree with you, mostly because I can't really remember any of his other roles. 
<laughs> See, that's what I mean. I remember he was he was quite fun to watch in is it the accountant? Oh, I've not seen that. But yeah, that wasn't bad. But yeah, it's he's a very I think his talents to a certain extent lie in more directing stuff, and he has to be cast perfectly in a role to get it to work. But yeah. Yeah. Going back to the uh whole part of him gaining the muscle, I think it'd be really interesting to see like a movie where an actor goes from being really buff to just really skinny to really buff over the course of a film and they just don't address it like it's like christian bale he could do that he's yeah some sort of superhuman machine he just starts it really skinny gets really buff and then gets really skinny then really fat and you're just like okay no idea what's happening and that could be quite a trippy experience i think that's how you know like how time's gone on in the film just by the weight of the actor Another cool fact I have, um, in the lead up to Gone Girl's release, um, David Fincher and Gillian Flynn actually like falsely claimed that they changed the ending um, of the story like to the, for the film to kind of throw off fans and give the impression that they didn't know where the story was heading. But in reality, obviously, the film is incredibly faithful to the book and it sticks to that ending. But I think it's really interesting that they use that as a marketing technique. Yeah, it's definitely to get readers to come watch it because, like we've mentioned, the whole twists of a book on film have a like an inverse effect on themselves. Like it makes it less enjoyable to go back and rewatch them. More modern films uh, have been doing that to a kind of a cheeky extent. Like with the Marvel films and stuff, when they release trailers, they'll remove entire characters from those trailers. Entire scenes which are in the trailers do not make an appearance in the film, and it's just trailers and marketing have kind of lost their way when it comes to making a film trailers are just becoming three minute four minute slogs of just oh okay this is what the entire film is i now need, don't need to go watch it yeah i found that with two films particularly um the first being the second jurassic world with chris pratt and um, that basically showed the entire film and i remember literally sitting in the film and thinking yeah but I know what's happening because I saw this scene straight just straight took out of the film and put into the trailer and then Suicide Squad but the opposite way in that I remember seeing stuff in the trailer in Suicide Squad the first one not the new one coming out and I was like oh that looks amazing and then when I watched the film it wasn't in the film and it's kind of I think that kind of ruined the film for me I was like well you've kind of not lived up to what you've advertise the film is going to be and I think you're 100% right in that trailers are just so like they're too long they include too much they it's getting to the point where you can just watch a trailer and you've seen the film they kind of need to come up with new ways of advertising films now that get people excited especially because of the cinemas being like the way they have been during the pandemic we need to kind of get people excited about films again i think the issue with suicide squad isn't that they didn't include scenes it was the fact that it sucked <laughs> yeah i mean it was so bad but i can't i can't disrespect margot robbie because she was so good that and will smith they're the very few highlights of that film yeah hopefully but- the second one's better <laughs> It, it looks like it's going to be. When I'm watching a film, uh, it, I've kind of got to the point where I will look for the bits I saw in the trailer just to satisfy myself. Like, oh, yes, 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 yes. And this build in the trailer, yes. And then, like, when it gets to the point where there's no more trailer, <laughs> that's when I get excited for a film now, which is kind of why I'm like, do I give up this crazy addiction to movie trailers and just start enjoying the film again? 
Yeah. Yeah, They need to turn them down again. My mum doesn't watch trailers because she she has sat there in the film and gone, I've seen this film before. And I'm like, well, you haven't. It was the trailer. But yeah, I can get what you mean. You've seen these scenes. Uh, Another quick fact for you. During filming for Gone Girl, there's a scene where Nick Doon's character has to wear a baseball cap, but it was for a, a baseball team that Ben Affleck absolutely hated to the point that he refused to wear it. And as a result, they had to stop filming for about two days. Oh, my and, God. Uh, following the film being made, uh, David Fincher just casually referred to him as kind of like a sissy, just being like, why didn't he just wear the hat? And I thought that was great. Oh, I love that. He is a sissy. Like, why didn't he just wear the hat? It doesn't matter if you support it or not. Case yeah. in fact that Ben Affleck is a strange guy. He's an interesting fellow. But he's yeah. got the chin. He's got the douche chin, so I'll allow it. He's got the punchable face. Uh, face worth a thousand punches. <laughs> I like that. That's going to be the tagline for this episode. Lucy, book or film? I think the book for me is probably the winner. Like, I very much enjoy the film and it's entertaining. It's a good ad- adaptation. It keeps in the dark twists on like the modern marriage that is central to Flynn's narrative um, and it stands out in that it is more streamlined and we we do kind of get to the point and to the plot twist a lot quicker than the book but I think for me the reason I love the book so much is because you kind of get into the side of the heads of Nick and Amy and we get engrossed in their kind of reasonings behind the way that they act and it, it's that what makes it kind of disconcerting to read it and then to then watch the film and and like although the film doesn't fail to entertain I think it does lack at some moments to be as gripping and as as kind of thrillerish if that's a word as the book so I think in that way I'm probably going to pick the book over the film but I still really enjoy the film what mm. about you? I 100% agree with you I think the film I mean the book does a really good job of having that moral grey area of yes, Nick deserves this, but also does he really deserve all of this? And they're both horrible people, they deserve each other. But I keep going back to the initial watch of the film for me with my friends and just the the shock of all the twists and stuff I had. Like I had heard nothing about that film prior, like I didn't know anything. And to that, it was just kind of my virgin brain to Gone Girl just being like, blown away and I felt because of that I probably prefer the film but I 100% know that if I was to go back and read the book first without having any knowledge of the film or anything I would have enjoyed that more the first time than I would do the film the first time but I'm probably going to say as a person now my film is the favorite as it goes. I think that's interesting because it's it goes back to this, what did you want out of the book and what did you want out of the film? And for you, it's more about the experience of watching it and that feeling when you figured out the twist. Whereas for me, it's, I love the twist and the twist will always be the thing that when I think like of films or books to recommend, I'll always think of Gone Girl. Like if you're looking for a book or a film that has a major twist, like Gone Girl's the one. But I think for me, I kind of love 
getting inside these characters' heads. And I love books that are very much focus more on character than plot. And I think that's why I love the book more. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's in part due to the experience and also in part due to just the enjoyment you have reading it and sharing that tale with other people. Yeah, I definitely want to read her other one. Um, Sharp Objects, is it called? Yeah, I've, I've been seeing that a lot everywhere. And after this, I'm definitely going to add it to the list. Yeah. So it seems we have once again come to the end of the page and to the credits. And um, thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget if you want to get in touch, we're on social media at from page to pick on Twitter and at from page to picture on Instagram, where we will keep you updated with new episodes and behind the scenes facts. Next episode we will be discussing the perks of being a wallflower by Stephen Chbosky and its 2012 film adaptation starring Logan Lerman and Emma Watson.